Revelations 2. Uh, told Wayne yesterday doing this um, sermon today, really, I really came to a new appreciation of what Wayne goes through every week in getting sermons prepared. Um, as he said, we've talked about this since the end of last year, and I've been working hard on this particular message for three to four weeks and uh, finished typing it up and got it printed at 9.45 this morning. So, and just to give you a little bit of warning, uh, Samantha back there was asking me, knowing that I was preaching, she leaned back and she goes, how long is this sermon going to be? <laughs> to which I should have replied, there's a reason why Wayne bought comfortable chairs for y'all. Um, uh, I will apologize because I'm probably going to go fast. Um, I talk fast when I get nervous, and I get nervous every time I get up here. And I get more nervous when I think I'm not going to have time to say everything that I have. So if I rush, I apologize in advance, um, but I think you should be able to follow me. All right, we're in Revelations 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to be using a slightly different version than what you may see on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the Berean literal translation because I think there's a couple words that it that carries the meaning through a little bit better but it's not going to change the, the overall message. Uh, before we read that, just to recap, uh, we went through the church of Ephesus already, who was commended for their hard work, their perseverance, their discernment, the fact that they endured, but they forsook their first love and they were called to repent. Then we looked at the church of Smyrna, which was the afflicted church. They were in poverty, they were being slandered, and... There was a warning that there was even more persecution coming their way, but they were encouraged that Jesus would carry them through that. So today we look to see what, the, what Jesus has to say to the church at Pergamum. So, starting in verse 12. And to the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, These things says the one having the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where the throne of Satan is, and you hold fast to my name. And you have not denied my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there holding the teaching of Balaam, who would teach Balak to cast a snare before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So likewise... You also have some holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. But if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one overcoming, I will give to him the manna, having been hidden, and I will give to him a white stone, and on the stone a new name having been written, which no one has known, except the one receiving it. All right, uh, this is a little bit tougher sled than your, than your typical uh, daily bread devotional that has one verse out of the parables of Matthew, but it's really not going to be that hard. We're going to break it down line by line. Just to set the stage, Pergamum was a very important city under both the Greek and the Roman empires. In the first century, they had, um, well, they had been the capital of the whole province of Asia Minor for about 25 years. They were an important religious center. They had a number of pagan cults. 
They were the first city in Asia to build a temple to Caesar. And remember, we talked about the fact that Caesar worship was getting to be a big thing in the first century. And it was the cause of a lot of Christians being martyred. Because Christians would not and could not accept the fact that Caesar claimed to be a god and offer that pinch of incense that every good Roman was supposed to do. So they were in a difficult place. Pergamum, an ancient writer said, was given to idolatry more than all of Asia. Scripture doesn't record how this church got started, unlike some of the others. In Acts, Paul says that he passed through the region of Mysia, where Pergamum was located, in his second missionary journey. But there's no record that Paul went there, that he started a church, or even that he preached there. It's possible that during his time at Ephesus, where it says the word went out to all of Asia, that the church got started there, but we don't know. It may have just been believers who relocated to Pergamum from some other place and started a church. Regardless of which, there was a church, and it apparently was a significant enough church for Jesus to send this letter to and to address. So, verse 1. To the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, These things says the one having the sharp two-edged sword. All right, so the specific address to the church at Pergamum starts out similar to the previous two, and it's going to follow through for all the rest. Pretty much follows the standard format for any letter in the first century. Starts out identifying the sender and the recipient, where today we would say, Dear so-and-so, write the letter and, and then sign our name at the bottom. In the first century, you would identify who you're sending it to and who you are right at the beginning, so there is no doubt. Wayne pointed out earlier, the recipient of all these letters uses the work, the Greek word angelos, the angelos of the church. That's where we get our English word angel. And for the vast majority of the time that angelos is used in the Greek New Testament, that's exactly what it means. It's referring to an angel. However, the word literally just means messenger. Uh, I think in this context, I would agree with Wayne. It makes more sense that this is referring, it's a symbol, referring to the pastor or the leader of the local assembly of believers. <clears throat> it doesn't make sense that Jesus would dictate a letter to be physically written down and then delivered to a spiritual being. That just doesn't seem to, to make sense to me. All right, so it's addressed to the leaders. And whether you call them elders, pastors, shepherds, or angels, maybe we should start calling him Angel Wayne. I think he, he, might, he might like that title. Angel Wayne, it has a good ring to it. It makes it clear that these men have a huge responsibility before God, not just for what they teach, although that is a huge part, not just for what they teach, but for how their congregation is living. Think about that. How would you like to be held responsible before God for how everybody out there is living? Paul knew exactly what this was like. He says, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he's talking to them about the pressure that he faces. And he says this, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Um, Wayne mentioned the fact that we get together on Wednesday mornings for prayer. I just want to put a little plug in here to say, your pastor cares very deeply how you are doing how you are living, how you are growing or not growing. There's plenty of times when we get together and you can just tell he's burdened for somebody. 
Now, he's very good at if somebody has given permission, he shares details. If someone has not, he doesn't give details. But I know that he's burdened for things that are going on in the congregation. And that's as it should be, because he's going to give an account for you at some point. And all I would like to say at this point is, be good sheep. All right, so the sender of the letter is identified as the one holding a sharp two-edged sword. Now, we might not understand what that means if we hadn't read chapter 1. But chapter 1 already identifies that person as being the Lord Jesus. But we need to realize that what that means, okay, the, the sword in Bible symbolism, all the way from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, when you see sword mentioned in many cases, not every time, but in many cases it's a symbol of judgment. Okay, There's a sword hanging over somebody waiting for them to decide if they're going to do right or wrong. Isaiah 49 has a description of the coming Messiah, and uh, part of it says this. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, O distant people. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a polished arrow and held me in his quiver. So the Messiah, part of the role of the Messiah is that of judge. In Hebrews, it tells us, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it would seem from this, the way that Jesus introduces himself to the church. He's reminding the believers at Pergamum that this message is coming not just from their Savior, but also from their Lord, someone who's both able and willing to wield the sword of judgment if it's needed. I don't know if any of you have ever raised teenage sons. Almost without fail, you will reach a point with your teenage son where they get what my dad called too big for their britches and feel like they can take the old man on. And... Um, I think what Jesus is saying, the same thing that many dads say when they get into that situation, remember, boy, I brought you into this world, and I can surely take you back out again. <laughs> I think it's a good reminder for us as well. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Uh, in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, he weaves a tale that uh, pictures Christ in this make-believe world that he creates. And the character of Aslan, the great lion, is his picture of Jesus. And I love the way he describes the first time that the human children who come into this world, they're getting ready to meet Aslan, the great lion. And they're giving some, getting some advice from some of the, the animal characters. And this animal says, If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then... He isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Yes, Jesus is our savior and friend. He's equally our Lord and the judge of all mankind. And we need to keep that balance. 
Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where the throne of Satan is, and you hold fast to my name, and you have not denied my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Whew. All right. Let's start by looking at the idea of a throne. A throne implies some type of authority or power or control, correct? Are we aware that our enemy, the Satan, the accuser, the adversary, has, for right now, a temporary, limited, but very real amount of control over this sinful world that we live in? We need to remember that. Jesus said, speaking of that, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. First John says this, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul, speaking to the Ephesians, says this, You were dead in trespasses and sins, and whence you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul tells the Corinthians, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It won't last forever. But for now, we need to remember, and the people in Pergamum certainly knew, that we're living in enemy territory. That's another good reason not to love this world and try so desperately to hold on to it. All right, there's multiple interpretations about this whole idea of Satan having his throne in Pergamum. Uh, I want to point out one important fact. Um, I've kind of stressed the, the idea that Satan has this limited control. But although he is a very powerful spiritual being, and we should never underestimate him, we shouldn't overestimate him either. He's a created being. He can't be everywhere at once like God. Um, some people have uh, people who are not in church, the people that you rub shoulders with that consider themselves spiritual but not Christian, they probably have this idea. There's good and bad in the world. God is good, Satan is bad, and they're, they're pretty much equal, and they're battling it out to see who's going to win. That is completely wrong. Okay, God is everything, and Satan is this little bitty little gnat down here that's buzzing around and has control of this little clod of horse manure down here. And someday, that's going to happen. All right? But for right now, he's still buzzing around. So, I'm just going to throw this out. This is Steve's interpretation. Right? I always try to warn you when I'm giving you something that may or may not be. Here's, here's my take on that. Given the fact that Satan's limited, he can only be in one place at one time, it's very possible that at that time, in the first century, his headquarters were at Pergamum, the center of idolatry and, and uh, all the worship of, of, emp of emperors that was happening in Asia. Um, today, I think it's Washington, D.C. Just my opinion, but I have no idea. Regardless of what that means, Jesus commends these believers at Pergamum. All right? They were holding fast. Okay? That term means to grasp something firmly and to grasp it completely. Uh, Jesus used the same term when he was giving the parable about the unforgiving servant. Remember the servant who was forgiven this huge amount of money and then he turns around and he finds somebody else who owes him a little bit amount of money and it said he choked him 
demanding to be repaid. Well, that, that phrase of choking him is the same thing of holding fast. He had a hold of the guy that he couldn't get loose. He wouldn't let go. Okay, that's what these guys were doing. So in spite of pressure and persecution, the believers at Pergamum were holding tightly to Jesus' name. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a person's name was really significant. Um, may, way more than it is to us today. We, some of the things that people name their kids nowadays, I'm not quite sure if there was controlled substances involved at the time or not. But some of them I can't pronounce, frankly, and I, I need to use nicknames for some of them. But back at this time, okay, in the first century, um, what you called someone was considered the manifestation or realization or revelation of their character. Um, it distinguished them from everybody else. According to Hebrew notions, <clears throat> a name is inseparable from the person to whom it belongs. It is part of their essence. Now we get that if you look at the Old Testament where God names or renames people. Okay, um, Sometimes we don't understand the naming, but it's very specific, and it meant something. So to hold on to Jesus' name was very significant for these first century believers. And apparently, that holding on came at a very high cost. Because Jesus reminds them of one of their brothers in Christ who was killed for refusing to deny Jesus. We don't have a ton of reliable historical information about who Antipas was. A uh, couple of places that I read... Uh, there's some church um, tradition bordering on legend that this was a guy who was one of the early pastors, refused to worship the emperor, and he was roasted alive in a giant hollow bronze bull. Um, don't know if that's true or not, but what we do know is this guy died for his faith and refused to deny Jesus. And that served as an example for them to follow, as well as a sobering reminder of how much it costs to follow Jesus. All right, in that context, okay, in this city where Satan dwells, where people are being martyred, where it's dangerous to believe in Jesus, they're holding on, Jesus reassures them. The first words that he says were, I know, okay? That word where he says, I know, has the meaning of seeing something. Okay, it's not just, you know, when somebody's telling you a story and you're like, yeah, 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 no, 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 no. this is more like you're, you're zoned in, and when they're done, you say, I see what you're saying. Okay, it is perceiving a situation with clarity. Jesus is telling them, I know what you're up against. I know exactly what your situation is. You don't need to tell me how hard. You don't need to tell me how bad it is in Pergamum. I know, okay? So we should not, and the, I think he was telling the believers there too, he was reminding them that he knows. What I would like to, for us to get to is not to dare to tell our Lord, you don't understand how hard it is to follow you in my life. Sometimes we think that. Sometimes we think, and I, I will stand up as the, the poster child of that. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the few times in my life that I would go on record as saying I heard directly from God was a time when I was going through something that was hard 
and I was convinced that God didn't understand how hard I was going through it. And I finally I said to God, I said, this is too hard. I can't follow you anymore. This is just too much. And <laughs> immediately I distinctly got a word from God, not out loud, but he let me know in certain terms. He said, well, have you had to hang on a cross lately? So he's aware. He's very aware. The point being, even if you lived in a town that was home to the devil himself, God would still call you to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Now, you may think the devil lives in your home, but that's a whole other story. All right, then we hit verse 14. Jesus flips the coin. He's been commending them. He's been encouraging them. He's been telling them, I know exactly what situation you're in. Now he gets real with the church about some serious, serious problems. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there holding the teaching of Balaam, who would teach Balak to cast a snare before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So likewise, you also have some holding the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. But if not, I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. All right, if you've been reading the Bible, the whole Bible, like you should, these names will immediately bring to mind a very strange story about a mad prophet and a talking donkey. Um, some people pronounce the name Balaam. I've heard it both, Balaam, Balaam. The real sad ending to that story is not about the talking donkey. It's the fact that God goes through an incredible effort to keep the Israelites safe from enemy attack, but ultimately they lose. Not because they're overpowered in battle, but because they can't control their own lust. An enemy army was no problem, but an army of prostitutes ends up having them turning their back on God overnight and receiving God's judgment as a result. So Jesus in this letter is equating this teaching of Balaam, who taught the Israelites to sin with these Moabite women, with the teaching of the Nicolaitans in the church at Pergamum. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the Nicolaitans. If you read five commentaries you're going to get six different opinions on who the Nicolaitans were and where they came from. Fortunately for us, it doesn't matter because the core issue is not their history. The core issue is their heresy. It seems that there was a church within the group of Pergamum that was promoting this perverted view of grace. And they were teaching that since all of our sins are paid for, we can sin as much as we want, and God doesn't care, and they can still be saved and go to heaven, and everything's good. Now, let's be honest. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know that churches throughout history have struggled to find the right balance of grace and holiness. We've got some churches, even yet today, who are modern-day Pharisees. They're all focused on man-made external rules, and they completely ignore the heart. And then we've got churches today who are the exact opposite, 
who are celebrating sinful practices amongst their congregation that God identifies in his word as abominations. So, how do we hold on to grace while still striving for holiness? And this is something that, that I go to a lot. Um, it, it, it's a struggle. It's, it's hard to maintain this balance, and it's easy to get off one way or the other. So my suggestion in this, what I would go to, or what I go to myself, and what I would suggest, I love the book of First John. I think it provides a lot of balance talking about sin, talking about not sinning, talking about forgiveness and confession and loving God. So I'm just going to read a little bit out of 1 John chapter 2. You're going to get the, the tone of this. John loves these people that he's writing to, and he's like a, a father just pouring out his heart with compassion and, and urging these, these people to, to live up to what they believe. <clears throat> John says this, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that we are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you're ever tempted to think that God's not concerned about that particular sin in your life, go back and read 1 John, beginning to end. It's short. You can get through it in just a few minutes. And then go back and read Revelations 2.16 and think, do you really want Jesus making war against you? I think that came on pretty strong to the people at Pergamum. I, I hope that it was received uh, in the spirit that it was sent. Something else I want to point out that we need to remember, this letter was addressed, it was of course sent to the churches. It was supposed to be read by all the churches, but it was addressed to the pastors, to the leaders. Jesus says to the pastor, I have a few things against you because you have some there I think the context of this makes it clear the problem is not just that some of these members were being sexually immoral. That was a problem, and of course that needed to change. But I think also the problem, and maybe the bigger problem, is that the church leadership was letting it go unchallenged, unpunished. 
undealt with at all. Paul had the same problem. The church at Corinth was a messed up church. In uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses an issue that they were not addressing and flat out tells them that they needed to do something about it. And he says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he writes, as he concludes this, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, anytime you read this passage of Scripture, you just know there's going to be somebody out there whose hairs are going to stand up on the back of their neck, okay? Because this is controversial in today's culture. There was a day that this wasn't controversial at all, but now it is. I know there's people hearing this, people hearing this, that are flat out rejecting the possibility of any form of church discipline. But I can guarantee you the problem is not with God's instruction. The problem is with our stubborn, independent, prideful hearts that refuse to submit to anyone telling us what to do or not to do. And this is kind of unique to our modern culture and to America today. I know, and as soon as I get done the most, I know I'm going to hear this. Everybody has or has heard a horror story about church discipline that was done wrong. And, of course, that, that's, it's wrong, okay? There is a way to do it and a way not to do it. But if somebody burned your biscuits once, does that mean everybody has to stop making bread? No, you just need to learn how to make biscuits better. If we follow the instructions correctly, okay, this can be done. And Jesus gave us explicit instructions. It's not like these were suggestions, okay? Jesus told us exactly how to handle these type of things. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Step one. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Great. If he doesn't listen, step two, take two, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Step four. If he refuses to listen even to the church, 
let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right. God calls us to sanctification, which is just a $5 word that means we need to be more like Jesus every day. All the letters in the New Testament from Paul and Peter and James and Jude and others are telling us how to know how to do exactly that, how to become more like Jesus. And we need pastors who are willing to tell us and expect it from us. And if we don't think Jesus will step in and take care of unrepentant sin in our church, if we don't, you haven't been following along what we've been reading here this morning. So, he commands the church, the believers at Pergamum, to repent. Um, probably not a word that you used in your conversation standing in line at Costco last time you were there. We don't hear about repentance a whole lot. So what does is, what is mean to repent? Maybe the easiest way to look at it is what it does not mean to repent. So there's a, a great example in the Old Testament that God gives of how not to do repentance. And that's in the book of Malachi. Malachi, God is... Uh, outlining he's bringing charges against Israel for their unfaithfulness and he's listing these are the things that you've done since you seem to want to know why I'm mad at you I'm gonna tell you these are the things you've done wrong and then he gets to this one here's the second thing you do you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand but you say why does he not because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So they came to the altar. Well, they came forward to the altar. They're crying. They're groaning. They're calling out to God to cover their situation. They're repenting, right? God says, no, that is not repentance. God was having none of it in here. Why? Because the pattern of their life didn't match the profession of their faith. They were saying one thing and then turning around and doing something else. To repent means you see clearly what it is that God's saying is wrong. And then you do this. <laughs> okay? It doesn't do any good to see, yep, I see that I'm doing that wrong. <laughs> I'm going to go do some more of it so I can repent some more. That doesn't make any sense at all. Why do we think God is going to tolerate that? Do we think we can get away with that? It's crazy. We have, a, well, we used to say in, in another church I was part of that sin is a temporary insanity. Okay? We can know this is wrong. We, we can know I'm likely going to get caught. We can know there are serious consequences if that happens. And yet we still do it. And I include myself in that boat as well. Okay, I, I struggle with this on a daily basis. But we need to at least have an understanding if we're going to do something different, well, what does that different look like? All right, so what does it look like? Well, the best description I've ever heard of repentance is a short story. And it's a story that's told in four acts. Act one, day one, walking down the street, I fall into a mud pit. I didn't want to be in the mud pit. I hadn't planned on being in a mud pit. It takes me a long time to get out, and even longer to get cleared up, cleaned up. 
Day two. Walking down that street, I see the mud pit. I walk up to the edge to get a better look. I fall in the mud pit. It still takes me a long time to get out. Day three. Walking down that street, I see the mud pit. I try to go around the mud pit. I fall in the mud pit. I hate this mud pit. Day four. I walk down a different street. That's repentance. Repentance is not just being sorry for your sin. It's hating your sin to the point that you are willing to make changes in your life to avoid that sin. We need to be honest with ourselves that we're tempted by things. Sometimes we think, oh, if I'm a real Christian, I should be able to, you know, walk into a bar and not get drunk and not be tempted by anything there. Well, that's dumb. That's just dumb. There are, there are some things, there are some sins that are unique to me that I know I need to avoid these situations because that's just bad for me to be there. Other people can be there. I don't, I don't judge what other people can or cannot do. In my family, we can't drink alcohol because my family has a history of substance abuse. It's littered through, there's a, a train wreck of all kinds of junk in my past in my family. And so I've made the decision that I can't drink. I don't think drinking is wrong. I don't think that no one else should drink alcohol. I don't think it should be banned throughout the whole world. Well, maybe it should. But I don't push that on someone else. But I know what I can't do, and that's have any alcohol, any at all. And that's what we need to get to. We need to get to the point where we're willing to walk away from that. All right. So when you repent of whatever sin God's convicting you of, you need to combine it with finding a different street. All right, verse 17. The one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one overcoming, I will give to him the manna, having been hidden. And I will give to him a white stone, and on the new stone a name that's been written, which no one has known except the one receiving it. All right, there's some odd stuff here, but we can get through this. We hear this phrase, uh, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. Jesus used that a lot. When he was telling his parables, he would tell a parable, then he'd say, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. That's just Jesus' way of saying, hey, if, if you're actually listening to God, pay attention to what I just said and take it to heart. Um, I hope that you've got an ear to hear that Jesus is calling us just like he did the, the believers at Pergamum, to be overcomers. And that he's got a reward for those who are overcomers. This is a spiritually discerned thing. Um, there's a lot of talk, a lot of talk, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible about being an overcomer. Uh, in 1 John, uh, John says this, For this is the love of God that we keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? All right, so step one to being an overcomer is to be a believer of Jesus and to follow him. Jesus taught this, and it's recorded in the book of Matthew, talking about the end times. Brother will deliver brother over to death, 
The father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Painting a very rosy picture. This is not exactly what you're going to hear in the prosperity preacher's messages. Um, Just put your faith in Jesus and everything's going to be perfect from then on. And Jesus ends it like this. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Um, Just to put it in kind of a, a common term, does it matter how well you start a race? Do they, do they take pictures of people starting the race and then publish that in the paper and say, here's the person who started the race the best? No. What matters? How you finish the race, right? If you, you know, get 10 yards and then, yeah, yeah that's, I'm getting sweaty. This isn't for me. You're not going to get a medal. You're not going to get anything, okay? It's how you finish the race. It's how you endure to the end. It's how you overcome, all right? Don't be content to coast. I I know people who were saved 30 years ago and they're still telling that story as if nothing has happened in the past 30 years. They they have no new victories. It's just, well, God saved me from that 30 years ago. And I said, well, now are you teaching Bible classes? And oh, no, no, I, I can't even pray out loud in front of people. What have you been doing for 30 years? All right? You need to grow, okay? Things that don't grow die. You just can't be stagnant. All right, where he talks about manna. Manna, of course, is a uh, pointing back to the Old Testament where God provided for the Israelites. They're wandering in the wilderness. Now, there's a whole sermon that you could do on the symbolism of manna and Jesus being the bread of life and how those things interact. But for now, we'll just say that manna is a symbol. God's provision and God's strengthening for us. And Eddie's here somewhere, right? Oh, there he is. I know you can give me the answer to this question. Maybe somebody else. If there's any Tolkien fans out there, this is a good platform for me to ask this question. I've always wondered, in Tolkien's story, where the travelers are going towards Mount Doom and they're fed by the elves this special wafer called lembas and it like strengthens them and and makes them grow taller and everything i wonder if tolkien had in mind manna because tolkien was a very strong believer of a good friend of c.s lewis so if anybody has any thoughts on that i'd like to hear that just total side rabbit trail sorry about that all right we're also given a white stone with a new name Wow, I'm going to get a white stone with a new name. I'm excited. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to get martyred as long as I get that white stone with a new name, right? Americans are not so excited about that. Um, Doesn't seem like much of a prize. But again, students of Old Testament will pick up on the context. For one, being named by God is a pretty big deal. You think of people who were renamed by God. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. God names Isaac directly. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Saul changes his name to Paul. Okay? These new names that God gives us will uniquely identify the real you that only God sees, the true you. This is going to be something that's shared between you and the creator of the universe. There's references to other things like this in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, uh, the nations will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. 
You'll be called by a new name that the mouth of your God, that the mouth of the Lord your God will give you. All right. Got all the way through the verses, and well, Samantha's still awake. I must be doing okay this today, so all right. <laughs> that was a lot to take in, and, and frankly, I know it was. And for those of you who hung in with me, I will say what my Australian friends would say. Good on you, mate. All right, so what can we take away from this? All right, there's five points that I want to make to kind of wrap all this up. This is kind of trying to head off Wayne's mini-sermon at the end. So hopefully I'll do a good enough job that he won't need to re-preach my sermon for me. Just kidding, Wayne. I love you. All right, first I think we need to do this. Recognize that Jesus is Lord. Okay, get the whole picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. Number two, remember that he knows your circumstances. I know where you live, he says. Number three, remain true to his name no matter what. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I would not be surprised if we start seeing persecution against Christians in this country in the next few decades. Prepare for that. Number four, repent where needed by finding a new street. Uh, Wayne, did you notice all these are ours? I tried hard. I tried hard, but I, I couldn't come up with one on the fifth one. So, Okay, recognize, remember, remain, repent. Fifth one, overcome. <laughs> if you can think of an R word that works with overcome, go ahead. But uh, Overcome, look forward to his coming. Look forward to being past this world of woes and sorrows and people in our family who pass on and sickness and struggles with sin. That's the thing that I look forward to the most. One day, I'm not going to struggle with sin anymore, and I just can't wait for that to happen. 